0: From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at Greenbiz Headquarters at 350 Franco Gawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, the Green New Deal and the Restoration Economy, the latest download on Project Drawdown. Our man at Microsoft, who's to National Geographic, and former Agriculture Secretary Vilsack on Greening the Dairy Industry. We're milking it this week on 350. It's February 22nd, 2019. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350, the run-up to our Green Biz 19 event coming up next week. Joining me from the winter wonderland of the Garden State is GreenBiz Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather.
1: Hello, Joel. And may I say, happy belated birthday, listeners. It was our friend's birthday this week.
0: That friend would be me, I guess. Uh, thank you, thank you, thank you. I I've got a lot of great, well-wishing uh, going on in the office and online, and you know, I'm always amazed to see all my Facebook friends <laughs> that I forget about <laughs> or light up. It's it's always a delight. Um, but yeah, another another day older and whatever next
1: year you get to you get to celebrate during the green Biz event next year no
0: no no next year mm-hmm. the green Biz event's the first week in february Um, so mm-hmm. mine's i'm the 19th so but um we will be celebrating uh next week someone else's birthday uh one of our esteemed staffers so stay tuned for that but um h- how are you feeling any ready for next week
1: I am excited and ready. I'm I, I'm redoing my outlines for all my sessions and checking, you know, doing those lists and checking them twice. Uh, I am excited to be participating on the sidebar this year for our live um, our live stream, the virtual conference, and so I'm kind of getting my arms around what it means to host that event and. Uh, I've got some great interviews lined up. I'm really excited about so. Uh. So
0: this is the uh, part of the conference that we live stream to the world for free. You can register for that on greenbiz.com. And and during the networking breaks, when everyone's out there, outside and schmoozing and doing their thing, and and or even in the run-up, sort of the pre-game uh, of the main stage and the post-game, where after it's over, uh, the sidebar has we have some exclusive online interviews you'll be doing with some of the speakers and other notables uh, of the f- close to 1,500 people who will be in Phoenix next week. And then um, it's also how people ask questions, whether you're in the room or online, you ask questions and Heather will direct them to the stage. So it's, it's uh, if you haven't been part of the online, of the live stream of our events, we do this for every one of our events. It's great. and And this time, Heather and John Davies will be the co-host. Yes.
1: Excited and apprehensive. About what?
0: Oh, come on. You're always (laughs) so great.
1: (laughs) There's a lot of moving parts, but I'm excited. And if you can't join us in Phoenix, for sure, sign up for the the virtual conference. Yeah.
0: And even if you can't make the virtual conference in real time, signing up allows you to to watch uh, on demand the main stage activities, the live stream after the fact. So you got to sign up, but it's free, so why wouldn't you? It's going to be a great week. I'm, I'm, I'm always so excited about this event. I'm excited about all of our events, but this one is in particular because it's, you know, this more than any of the other events is is feels like family, family reunion. Um, you know, hundreds of people who've been coming to our events for this is our 11th annual uh, Green Biz Forum, State, uh, Green Biz uh, 19 this year. And um, uh, sixth year, I think, in Arizona, uh, and we'll be there for a long time to come. We're booked all the way through 2023. We know our dates. um, We'll be moving to a great new venue next year in 2020. Anyway, um, this is where my people, you (laughs) know, the the people, the the corporate sustainability Mm -hmm. executives that I have been had the great joy of knowing and working with and writing about for 30 years now come together. And, um, and even people who are, who have retired, some of them still come um, and are be part of so us. Our, our editor-at-large, Bob Langert, will be there. He has this new book out. We've talked about that on this program. And I'll be doing a fireside chat with him uh, about uh, you know, looking at his career as, the, as the 30 years at McDonald's. And so this amazing journey he was on. But lots of other great sessions. I'm, I'm, I'm just psyched. And, you know, it's Arizona in February. So that's it's actually going to be cooler this year. We're not going to have our 80 degrees. It's going to be in the mid-60s. But, you know, it probably sounds pretty good to you right now, Heather. I'll
1: take it. I'll take it. More snow this week here. And I'll take that.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, we have a flurry of stories to cover. So let's get to the Week in Review.
1: get us started this week. Joel, first one up for me is the Green New Deal would boost the restoration economy. What does that mean? And so, of course, that was a very click-worthy headline <laughs> to an article by Steve Zwick. He's uh, the managing editor for Ecosystem Marketplace. But this story does a good job of talking about the Green New Deal, of course, the proposal for a new sort of economic framework from Alexandria Ocaso-Cortez and Senator Ed Markey out of Massachusetts, um, AOC being from my neck of the woods in New York, by the way. And in any event, this piece does a good job of talking about how that might affect what they call the restoration economy. So, we're talking about sort of the projects um, that that use land, and and how would how would the environmental markets be affected, if you will? So. How would an offsetting of an infrastructure project affect a rural community? And so this piece does kind of a good job of looking at the different ideas for using nature as a as an offset, if you will, for the the bad big bad things that companies and communities can do when it comes to environmental impact.
0: So, what would the Green New Deal do to all this? So it sounds like. Uh... It would have a positive effect, I'd imagine. So,
1: yeah. So one of the things that, that really this, this particular article talks about is um, the jobs, right? So, and, and one of the things I really appreciated was that it could, uh, you know, there's a couple of, he does this as a list, but restoration stimulates rural economies. So there's a really um, sort of nice link, if you will, between how um, you use watersheds or um, new, new forests and, and so forth to protect against flooding and, um, and, to you know, other storm-related events, water runoff, of course. And uh, so this piece talks about the jobs. It could be Florida, you know, Oregon alone had um, more than 7,000 waterstead restoration projects going on, which generated nearly 6,500 jobs from 2001 to 2010. So, and many of those jobs went to um, people that had been laid off from logging companies. So, the, the piece does a good job of linking um, you know the jobs that might be lost from fossil fuels industries to new types of jobs um, and by the way, not jobs that that require that could be taken by robots these are are sort of solid um, green collar jobs that 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 people could uh, pick up if, if their jobs disappear in a fossil fuels industry
0: yeah there 's nothing more shovel ready as we used to call it back during the uh uh, recession recovery, nothing more shovel-ready than land restoration. So um, it looks like uh, a lot of those from the map that's in this story are just clustered right in coal country in uh, Georgia and West Virginia and Tennessee, plus a lot in Minnesota and uh, Wisconsin and Michigan, and of course, much in California as well, and different types. It's forest and land-use carbon, um uh, yeah imperilled species habitats, wetlands and streams watersheds uh, other kinds of things going on pretty interesting
1: yeah regenerative. and yeah so that was sort of the, the this one was one of those ooh a a a nice link between one, one of the things we talk about, which is natural carbon storage right natural carbon removal um through soil and and um, farming projects and and so forth so yeah
0: and 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 by the way, just do a quick plug because uh, we did announce something uh, momentous of uh, sorts this week, which is the in, the launch of our fourth Quantum Four uh, conference within Verge, our f- October event in Oakland. Uh, as many of you will remember, last year we divided the conference into three concurrent conferences, Verge Energy, Verge Transport, and Verge Circular. Uh, this time we're adding a fourth, because three apparently isn't enough <laughs> uh, verge carbon focusing on this uh, new carbon economy, particularly carbon removal. And so lots more to come on that. And we'll be covering that. Uh, but this land use piece is is very much part of that because the uh, sort of biological solutions of sequestering uh, carbon in soil through farming and other methods and, and land restoration is definitely part of that. Um, is is a good part of that mix but um let's switch to another story and and you're on a roll here heather so i'd love you to talk about this uh this new arrangement in in pennsylvania and i'm going to mangle the name of this town is is it wyomissing or wyomissing you know i don't really
1: know it's what this is one of those situations where i wrote about the town but i have absolutely no idea how to say it either (laughs) but i did get a a couple emails from people who were in the area who were excited to see this well i did Um, see i
0: I did think it was a, a typo at first when i saw i had to look it up is you know Wyoming, missing. it's like Wyoming is missing. But um, anyway, sorry. <laughs> As you were, what's going on here?
1: Right. So, so this is this is what one of my favorite topics, Joel. It's a blockchain application. Um, so, <laughs> this this is a, a project that involves a company out of Australia called Power Ledger. They were the winner of um, Richard Branson's 2018 Extreme Tech Challenge. And they have a platform which uses blockchain to um, sort of track uh, generation of solar power and help um, associate a a renewable energy credit with it, and then move that, you know, help also track where the the power is going. So um, in this particular instance, um, this, this energy company out of Wyoming, Pennsylvania, or however you pronounce it, and I'm sorry for the residents of that town, um, but there's a, a 20-year-old company there called American PowerNet, and so American PowerNet uh, they they help um, with corporate arrangements on the PJM, the the, um, the ISO, the internet, uh, the system that that runs the grid operations in my neck of the woods in Pennsylvania, Maryland, New Jersey, and so forth. And um, they came up with an idea of. Of letting their neighbors essentially benefit from their excess solar generation. So American Power Net has, is this company. Um, they they're in the energy space. They, they know a lot about the the sort of ins and outs of deregulated markets and 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 what they can do and not do and the sorts of services that you can build. So they figured out a way of using this blockchain technology from Power Ledger to basically move the excess solar power from their panels to their neighbors. So they went to their, na- you know, knocked on their doors of their neighbors and said, hey, you guys want some uh, solar power? We, we, we don't want to send this back to the, to the grid at large, but we, we, we'd love you to benefit. And so the, the, the neighbors said, of course. <laughs> um, so basically, these are, you know, two pretty small companies that are benefiting from this arrangement by their, their neighbor. Um, it's just a great, a corporate application um, that kind of shows the the power of what blockchain could do in distributed situations, you know, an office park. So is
0: this something that worked because there's smaller companies and it's harder for bigger companies to do or, or, or is this something that bigger utilities could also or power companies could also do, but it just haven't yet?
1: So it worked because, in this particular instance, it was a small situation, but, and I think, you know, yes, it's distributed among this, this campus, this little corporate campus in that town. Um, and the, the power that was generated was more than what the, the, you know, the original company, American PowerNet, could use itself, um, and enough to give to their neighbors so they could benefit from it, but not um, necessarily, you know, so they're kind of on and off the grid, if you will, um, at various times of day. They're not necessarily running their entire operation, but they are benefiting during certain t- periods of time, especially when there's excess generation. And the 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 power ledger platform helps automate that, right? So they set rules like, okay, when the p- the pricing is this much, you know, we're, we're going to use the solar, um, we're going to send it over here. But what American, you know, the other thing that American PowerNet is doing, of course, is they're testing this service to see how they could potentially offer it to to their own customers. So they could go to a an organization that that has on-site generation capabilities solar potentially potentially wind in the in the future but but mainly solar and and allow that company say in an industrial park or um you know in a neighborhood you know so you could see a situation where potentially a neighborhood might be able to offer um you know some some uh, some of their excess generation to their neighbors um so you know, corporate to consumer corporate to other corporates and you know i I think in this particular situation, American PowerNet was basically interested in figuring out what it could do with the power rather than, you know, just sending it back to the grid and not getting paid very much for it. They figured they could get more value out of it by, again, like sending it to their neighbors as well as, you know, allowing them to have the credits. Yeah.
0: Well, this is something we've been hearing about, talking about for a long time, so I'm glad that to see that it's finally getting going. Speaking of teaching old companies new tricks, there's another story that we ran this week, um, came out of a Michael Holder at Business Green, titled, Is Your Company's Pension Plan Aligned with Its Climate Commitments? Now, this is part of a, a growing recognition that uh, the trillions of dollars that are sitting in company pension plans and 401ks and all of that may not be aligned so much with companies' Climate commitments, but even more than that, and this, this is the hook for this story, uh, is a new study that came out of a group called uh, Share Action that said that hundreds of thousands of workers' retirement savings could be highly exposed to climate-related risk, and that's just in the UK. So I'm sure it's millions uh, in the states and and tens and if not hundreds of millions around the world. So they're starting to look at what is a climate-safe pension. We did a session last year at Greenbiz. I think we have another session again this year, next week, um, in partnership with the World Business Council for Sustainable Development, because they've taken up the more proactive part of this, saying if companies could put even just a percent or so of their pension funds into uh, Climate-safe pensions. I'm not sure that's their term, but that's the one that is in this article from ShareAction. It would uh, move uh, some trillions of dollars, uh, and and could potentially be persuasive, and uh, you know, in in the world of investing and, and impact. But this article focuses on the risk side of that, not just the opportunity side, and uh, it does look at at the companies in the FTSE 100 in this case and um, some of the risks that, that they'll be facing. Um, most of the companies actually have backed initiatives aimed at addressing climate risks, So 13 of the 15 companies taking part in the survey, but their investments uh, in their employees' pension funds and retirement plans don't necessarily match up. So this is an area, one of a couple areas that we're starting to see, and again, we're going to be talking about this next week, where companies, aren't yet aligned with their own commitment. So one is in the investments, uh, the pension plans and retirement plans, and the other is in their their uh, political activity, their lobbying uh, and advocacy, where they're still not either not vocal or in some cases working against uh, the policies that they've put in place, or at least uh, things that don't support those policies. So we're starting to see uh, go beyond the greening of companies, if you will, and their supply chains to the next and deeper level and the harder stuff, which is uh, you know advocacy, pension plans, and the like. And it's it's um, it's a natural extension of everything we've been doing, but it's this is where the real, real hard work um, you know just gets even harder.
1: Yeah, Joel, I'm I'm just curious. Do you think it that that disconnect is? I think my my gut is that it's it's not intentional. It's just that. The the policies internally haven't caught up yet. It's kind of like, oh my gosh, we have to do this. (laughs) We, there's just so much to do. Yeah, I mean,
0: companies, you know, the investment people, the folks who manage the money, the pension funds, and the retirement plans, they haven't thought about this. It hasn't come to their attention. They, they just, it hasn't been part of their consciousness. But as we've talked about a lot, and are going to no doubt continue to talk about a lot. We are now getting to the point where, where in mainstream investors, the big uh, asset managers, uh, the, the pension funds, um, the institutional investors, Black Rocks and State Streets and the like, are starting to really pay attention to the climate risks inherent in their portfolios through things like the Task Force for Cl- on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures. And this is a a big change. that's just happened amazingly quickly. We're going to be talking about uh, how to make it happen even quicker, how to accelerate this and align things between investors and corporate reporters at the Greenfin Summit that we're going to do on Tuesday morning, a half-day event in the run-up to GreenBiz19, so I'm really looking forward to that. I'll be co-facilitating that with with Richard Madison, the CEO of TrueCost. But this is all part of that piece, and I have to say, it's really refreshing to see. One of the visitors to the Green Biz office last week was John Foley, the Executive Director of Project Drawdown. You may remember his name as the Executive Director formerly of the California Academy of Sciences. Last October, he joined Project Drawdown. Welcome to 350, John.
2: Yeah, thanks, Joel. It's really great to be here.
0: So you've been tracking Project Drawdown since its inception, and now you're, you're heading. And I'm wondering, now that you see what's going on and how the world is changing, the new science that's, that's come to the fore, IPCC and all of that, how is your view of what's needed to draw down climate change changed?
2: Well, one of the things I really appreciate about Project Drawdown, even before I joined it, is they were looking at the whole board. Climate change is more than just CO2. There's other gases like methane and nitrous oxide and fluorinated gases, a whole bunch of stuff that warm the planet. And they come from lots of different parts of the economy. Yeah, energy is a big player, but there's also deforestation, there's agricultures, there's uh, cement, there's uh, weird gases from chemical processes, you know, we all kind of remember that. But when you run the numbers, uh, energy, uh, CO2 from energy is only about 60% of the climate problem if you look at a 100-year average, but it's actually less than that if you look for the next two decades. So um, Project Rydon did a really more systematic uh, review of that and points out that there's a lot of opportunities to address climate change, whether it's looking at you know refrigerants or looking at you know food waste, looking at our diets, looking at um, energy opportunities, of course, but even novel building materials and other things. So Project Dryden is kind of a voice reminding us that we have lots of levers to address climate change and there's room for everybody to help out.
0: Well, speaking of everybody, you've got a lot of different constituencies investors and philanthropists, cities, uh, all of us as individuals, and of course, the business community. What's the response been from the business community to Project Drawdown?
2: Well, in general, Project Drydown has made a big splash. It's uh, has a best-selling book, uh, the New York Times bestseller for the last couple of years. It's probably the best-selling environmental book of the last year or two. Uh, so, it's made a big splash, and business leaders pay attention to that too. So, we have been contacted by a lot of folks who run big companies, uh, investors, and even small businesses and SMEs, you know, all over the place. Uh, but of the big businesses, um, yeah, a lot of them have been looking at Drydown, and saying, "Oh, wow." Uh, it's showcasing solutions that we never talk about. It's not just solar panels and windmills and planting trees. There's 97 other things we write about, for example. And uh, that's been really helpful to those business leaders. But also, they kind of like the brand and the language we use because we keep it simple. We keep it positive. We talk about opportunities and possibility. We don't. We're not in the doom and gloom business. You know, there's enough of that out there. And even the word drawdown, it's so simple. It's like, hey, instead of greenhouse gas pollution going up, we want to bring it back down again and stabilize our climate and restore it. So in that sense, uh, we've had a number of businesses uh, kind of come to us and say, hey, how do we become a drawdown company? How do we have a drawdown supply chain? How do we think about these solutions in our work uh, as a big business? And that's been really fun.
0: And I think that there is a tech company that uh, actually may draw down the basis of its but it's environmental or sustainability
2: plan. Yeah, it's really pretty interesting. Um, You know, it's not really official, you know, public announcement kind of thing, but like Intuit, a company here in the Bay Area that makes like TurboTax and Quicken QuickBooks, stuff like that, really big software company that a lot of people use, especially this time of year. Um, they, of course, wanted to green up their businesses. So they're, you know, greening up their operations, their cloud services, their servers and all that. But they actually read the Drawdown book really carefully and said, wow, when we do our offsets, kind of the things we needed to offset our own remaining emissions, they actually went with our number one answer, which was refrigerant management, like those gases like hydrofluorocarbons that can leak out of air conditioners and refrigerators and freezers. So they sent people to Ghana, I believe, to go to landfills there and capture those gases before they would uh, leak out of old rusty machines, and they captured and destroyed them. So they didn't go into the atmosphere. Turns out that was a much bigger deal for climate change than planting more trees and building more solar panels would have been for the same amount of money. Um, of course, we want to do all of the above, but we're really pleased. With like, hey, wow, they actually looked at the math we did and showed that this was an even more, uh, more bang for the buck in that particular situation.
0: So we've got the book. It's doing well. You've got all the science, the databases, um, and you've been in, at the head of this for four or five months. What's the plan? Where are you taking this?
2: Yeah, we're, well, we're really, really excited. We're going to what we call a kind of drawdown 2.0. So in the first round, um, Paul Hawken and the founders of Drawdown and the whole big team, were it's a definitely a group effort. They produced and published a beautiful book called Drawdown, uh, published by Penguin. You can go buy copies today at Amazon.com, by the way. Um, but books are great, and they're a really good thing to have as an anchor of your communication strategy. But they're not the easiest way to reach a lot of people. It's like 20 bucks at a time in bookstores electronically or in in brick and mortar stores. We need to move digitally. So we're we're setting up a, a very ambitious kind of plan for a campaign for reaching about a billion people around the world. Books can reach a few million people, but we need to reach closer to a billion. That may sound kind of crazy, but if we can't tip the conversation globally from kind of doom and gloom that we can't solve climate change to wait, no, Drawdown points out we can solve climate change and we'll enrich the global economy while doing so and we'll live better lives. We want people to move from being you know, in despair to being optimistic and determined to get up in the morning and do it. We need the Rosie the Riveter, basically, for climate change, if you will. And so that's one part of what we're doing. Uh, the second part is in Drawdown 1.0, our earlier work, we described in broad brush terms in the global economy how 100 different solutions to climate change would work and what they would cost. Now we want to partner with businesses, with investors, with things like cities, with community groups and others to say, let's help you in your situation, on the ground where you are, implement those drawdown solutions. And we want to do that at scale, working with big partners. So there we'd like to really influence about a trillion dollars, kind of worth of decision making, if you will, of moving financial and built capital and even human capital of that order of magnitude to help make a dent on the climate problem. So, yeah, a billion people and a trillion dollars. That's our goal for the next couple of years.
0: I love the ambition, and uh, hopefully you'll get a start on that in a few days at uh, Green Biz 19 in Phoenix where you'll be closing out the conference, and I'll look forward to that conversation as well. John Foley, Executive Director of Project Drawdown, thanks for stopping by.
2: Hey, thanks, Joel. It's great to be here, and we'll see you in Phoenix.
0: As you probably know, our intrepid editor-at-large, the aforementioned Bob Langer, the former VP of Sustainability at McDonald's, been writing this terrific series called The Inside View, where he's been just doing quick interviews with a whole range of sustainability professionals, some you may have heard of or know, and some you haven't, um, and and looking at their uh, perspective on on a range of things, sort of insider to insider. And he did a recent one uh, with... Tom Vilsack, who you may recall is the former Secretary of Agriculture uh, under uh, Obama for eight years uh, under Obama, and uh, is now the CEO of the U.S. Dairy Export Council, uh, and he was also a two-term governor of Iowa. So this is a gentleman who has been in ag for a long, long time. He talked about the dairy industry and and what's going on and what's going on are some pretty interesting things when it comes to sustainability that we as uh, if you're a milk drinker or a dairy product a user and I guess you know most people who are not lactose intolerant are one way or another uh, things that we don't hear about a lot and so I wanted to play a little clip from the interview that uh, that Bob did with Tom Vilsack where Bob asked him about dairy industry sustainability, and Vilsack talked about how difficult from a regulatory perspective it can be to bring sustainability innovations to market, and yet how they're still trying to push through those to get it done. Here's that conversation.
3: I'm really proud to be associated with the dairy industry because I think uh, dairy farmers and producers are very serious about this issue of sustainability. I think they're serious about it because they know it's the right thing to do. And they're also serious about it because they know their ability to sell to a domestic audience and to an export market audience is dependent on our ability as an industry to make the case that we are doing this in a sustainable way. The uh, farmers, uh, through their checkoff program, ha- have created an innovation center, which is uh, consists of the producers and processors of Substantial amount of the milk that's generated in this country. And in the Innovation Center, uh, there is a, a deep commitment to uh, sustainable production. In fact, uh, there is a specific commitment that processors and producers uh, are making that, that acknowledges their willingness to operate under uh, a program called FARM, F A R M, which is Farmers Assuring Responsible Management which is an animal welfare standard, the only one that's been certified by an international body. The ISO has certified this uh, this, this process for animal welfare. There has been a uh, willingness on the part of major producers and processors to commit to a, a series of protocols and standards as it relates to sustainability that, you know, that looks at ways to reduce greenhouse emissions. One of the interesting ways, I think, is the work that... Uh, a company that was formed through Checkoff dollars, called Nutrient, is looking at ways in which the manure from dairy operations can be essentially recycled. The water separated from the from the manure uh, and reused in the dairy process. The solids converted into a variety of new products, replicating, if you will, nature, so that we don't have a situation of manure being a waste issue and a problem, but that we see multiple ways to use the, that as a, a new chemical or, or a new fuel source or a new energy source, reclaiming water, making the dairy industry far more efficient and and far more sustainable. One of the challenges is as as the industry becomes more interested in reducing greenhouse gases and had somebody in my office not too long ago that has developed a, a feed additive that they believe will reduce methane. Uh, from the, the burping that, ca- that cows do, um, from from the other end of the cow, if you will, and they believe it can reduce it by thirty percent, which would be a significant reduction. Very important in terms of being able to do agriculture's bit and its and its role in adaptation and mitigation of climate change. The problem, of course, is that there are regulatory systems that have to be appro- have to be utilized in order to approve the use of this, and and depending upon the country, those regulatory systems are either very very quick and, and thorough or they are or they are very long and expensive. And the United States happens to be one where there really isn't uh, a regulatory process and review that is designed for this type of product. So they have sort of shoehorned it into the veterinary pharmaceutical drug category which involves multiple tests over a long period mm-hmm. of time and is substantially expensive which slows the capacity of getting this potential uh, greenhouse gas emission savings uh, technology into the market, certainly into the American market, which then in turn makes it harder for us to compete against those who can more quickly get this into their operations, which in turn allows them to make the sustainable argument in the marketplace more effectively. So I think part of our challenge is not just having the innovation, not just having the commitment to sustainability, but making sure that we have a partner in the regulatory systems of this country that allow these, these new technologies to take hold and to, to get in the market as quickly and safely as possible. The dairy industry is really committed to this. I think they understand uh, that we're facing, particularly in the western U.S., uh, a serious challenge with water. Uh, so you have processors looking at ways in which they can reclaim water uh, in their processing facilities so that essentially they're relying only on the water that the cow produces uh, through the milk as opposed to supplementing that with municipally provided water. adopt but there's expense involved and then the question is how do we how do we deal with that do we have the marketplace the commercial operations solely
0: Months ago, a good friend of ours, Rob Bernard, who headed sustainability strategy at Microsoft, took a new job at the National Geographic Society where he's now the global head of strategic partnerships. I was kind of curious what it means for a chief sustainability officer to go a different direction, so I called Rob up and he joins me on the line. Hey, Rob. Hey, Joel, how are you? Doing great. So tell me why you made this move. What did you see as the opportunity at National Geographic?
4: Yeah. So for me, I mean, the the move was sort of precipitated by the fact that I think there's a unique opportunity, and you know, I saw this quite a bit when I was at Microsoft as well for this intersection between sort of private sector and uh, although National Geographic's not the public sector, it's certainly an NGO and a science-based organization to sort of join forces in new ways if we're really going to go attack the challenges that we have on the planetary level. It's first like trying to get the lay of the land on what National Geographic is really working on these days, right? So I think we all think of it, or many of us think of it as, you know, the magazine that we grew up with or maybe the TV station. And while that's definitely the case, you know, there's the whole side of the science and exploration where it's really about focusing much more on protecting the natural world and reducing human impact and the human footprint. And then in each of those areas, there's a bunch of goals that National Geographic has laid out, And I think the only way, the only way we can get there as a society is if we're working with companies, corporations, other NGOs at a global level.
0: We had a meeting of our Green Biz Executive Network, hosted by 21st Century Fox, which owns, if I recall correctly, a 73% stake in National Geographic, and was just amazed at the reach of the organization and all of its various media and programs. It's quite extensive, and that seems like a great opportunity.
4: Yeah, it is. In fact, uh, you know, I think we're just about to hit the milestone of 100 million uh, accounts and users on Instagram. And so that reach is certainly very powerful if you think about the the TV station and movies as well as just a presence on a global basis. It certainly has a lot of reach. And the the question then, of course, becomes, well, if you have a lot of reach and you have a lot of scientists and photographers and uh, great writers, what can you do with those assets to help accelerate impact at scale? And in some ways, although this is a nonprofit and you know Microsoft obviously was a for profit company, that underlying fundamental challenge is very, very similar. So what can you do? So I think the first thing is being super clear on what we're trying to achieve. So there's an initiative that was launched at WEF just a few weeks ago called Last Wild Places and and the the concept here, and, and this won't be a surprise to many of your listeners, if we're going to protect the planet and actually preserve our species, which are going extinct at a thousand times the natural rate right now. You know, we've got to protect at least 30 percent of the planet, whether that's you know terrestrial or ocean, uh, by 2030, and more than that, you know, going to 50 percent by 2050. So, how do you do that on a global basis? How do you think about the intersection of tools, technology, policy, economic models to go do that? Uh, and then the second uh, area is really this human footprint. And so there, you know, readers may have seen or listeners may have seen the, you know, a big uh, issue a few months ago called planet or plastics, where it's really, hey, how do we actually have a much lower and then a really a benign footprint on the planet? And, you know, as as you and I have talked about many times over the years, I think we're still a very, very long way from that reality. And the only way we can actually do that is we change the infrastructure on which we all rely so that people can have a great lifestyle and still get the services they want, but without the degradation to the planetary resources that you know, we've all been witnessing over the last few decades.
0: So what can we look forward to? How are you going to leverage all these great resources? Where do you see the opportunities for NatGeo to insinuate sustainability into the conversation
4: more than it already has? Yeah, so I think there's a couple dimensions. I mean I think the first which you sort of hit on with the you know, the comments about sort of twenty first century Fox and then, you know, if the market and everything gets approved, you know, that'll change hands probably to to Disney at some point in the future. But regardless of of the brand and the engine behind it, it is driving awareness of the scale and magnitude of the issues and presenting them in new and interesting ways, right? So whether that's looking at things like plastics in the ocean at scale and creating maps and helping people visualize this in ways that although they might have intellectually known it at some level they haven't really viscerally understood it and so hopefully through things like the station and the magazine we can do a much better job of really shining a light on the the scale of the challenges so that's that's one thing which is informing people then the second thing is how do we actually drive um sort of an understanding of well okay, so now I'm aware, what kind of action can I potentially take if I'm a citizen, if I'm a, an organization, if I 'm a government, and there this is where this last wild place, this thing is you know incredibly important, which is how can we work with governments and with other NGOs around the world to drive policy changes? you know there's a, a whole thing that's happening in Africa around one of the, the two big rivers, uh, the, the Okavango Delta, where it's a lot about the preservation of wildlife and uh, areas where we need to preserve nature at scale. I've done a safari
0: in the Yokovanga Delta.
4: Yeah, so you're very familiar with it. And that's in an area where the combination of explorers and images and science and technology was absolutely instrumental in getting uh, some changes uh, in the area to actually preserve a significantly larger area uh, for wildlife and for water, water quality. And so that's all great, and all those things were happening. And I think the reason why I was excited to join National Geographic, and you know, I think part of the reason they were happy to, to ask me to come join after having been in the corporate world for 20 years is that's all great, but we need to do that plus a lot more. And so now if we want to talk about things like going after plastics, think about all the companies who either manufacture the raw ingredients and or are the bottlers and or are the companies putting stuff in our single-use disposable items and or selling those at retail, right? And how do we actually think about that infrastructure? And how do we think about green chemistry? How do we think about distribution models? How do we think about the infrastructure for recycling? We've got to change these things on a mass scale. And so the convening power, the power of the brand, the power of the science and exploration and education, and the fact that we have, as you pointed out, these megaphones, you pull all of those together That's what we're looking to do and say, okay, so we're going to choose a few things over the next few years, and and some of those, like Last Wild Places, have already rolled out, and we're going to double down to say, look, we think because we have megaphones and the convening power and all this other uh, great set of assets and scientists and explorers, how do we actually help move to drive a planet in balance? And that's really, you know, when you think about the vision and the mission of, of National Geographic, it is towards this planet in balance. Well,
0: it's an amazing opportunity, and I know it's early days for you, but National Geographic is over 130 years old, so it'll be pretty exciting to see what you're able to do and how that actually increases Nat Geo's impact. And if it's anything close to what you did at Microsoft, it's going to be a really interesting thing to watch. Rob Bernard is the new Global Head of Strategic Partnerships at National Geographic. Rob, thanks for talking to us. Thank you so much, Joel. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, you can go to greenbiz.com slash 350 and you'll find out whatever you need to know about the organization, stories, and events we mentioned in this episode. And while you're there, check out our other podcast called Center Stage, the best of live interviews from GreenBiz events. Our email is 350 at greenbiz.com. And don't forget to subscribe to one or more of our five weekly e-newsletters. Heather is now writing the Verge newsletter, trading off every other week with Shauna Rappaport. The energy newsletter comes from our new colleague, Sarah Golden. And we've got the transportation from Katie Fehrenbacher and the circular economy from Lauren Phipps. And my Green Buzz newsletter is fresh every Monday morning. Heather and I will be back next week from Greenbiz 19 in Phoenix. We look forward to seeing so many of you there or if not there, we'll see you online. If you are there, please find us and say hello. Until Phoenix, from all of us here at Greenbiz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening.